Exploring possibilities, change it for the better. Girl power, strong power, doing it together. Never underestimate, travel into every state. Follow us as we create the legacy of mercy. We're on our way, becoming who we are. We're gonna live, live the way we want. We're on our way, becoming who we are. We're gonna live. You just heard an anthem sung by members of the Merce Tate Explorers, a nonprofit grassroots organization founded in 2008 for girls in the 6th through the 12th grade. Like other youth groups embedded in communities of color, the organization introduces girls to mentors, exposes them to career and college opportunities, and, most importantly, funds travel and study abroad that wealthier students may take for granted. Merce Tate Explorers was founded by reporter Sonia Bernard Hollins, who became aware of historian and international relations expert Vernie Merce Tate when she was researching a series of articles about prominent African-American graduates of Western Michigan University. But maybe you're asking, who is Merce Tate? I'm not surprised if you have never heard of her. I hadn't before a few weeks ago. Despite Tate's prominence in her own time, I was never assigned her work in graduate school, nor was I aware of the substantial impact she made to the histories of international relations and American foreign policy. Tate was born into a rural African-American family in Michigan in 1905. Growing up in a majority white community, she was one of a few notable figures, another is W.E.B. Du Bois, who moved from a desegregated environment to a segregated one, as her educational accomplishments propelled her to Western Michigan University, then Western Michigan Teachers College. Tate was the school's first African-American graduate, and after commencement, she took a teaching position at the prestigious Crispus Attucks High School in Indianapolis. There she did something no other teacher had done, and that was difficult to navigate in a racially segregated country. Tate started a travel club, and took a group of black students to the nation's capital. The theme of Merce Tate's life was travel. This was true in the literal sense. She visited numerous countries on all but two of the world's continents. And it was also metaphorical, since over several decades, she went from being an ambitious, small-town girl to a cosmopolitan citizen of the world. Tate charted her path as an intellectual and fought for her dreams in a skilled, self-confident style that would equal one of today's students from any race, gender, or class. She earned a master's degree from Columbia University, then won scholarships that took her to Oxford University as the first African-American woman to earn the B-Lit there, and to Harvard University for a Ph.D. in international relations. Along the way, Tate won her first college teaching job at Bennett, a four-year liberal arts college for black women in Greensboro, North Carolina, and a second job at Morgan State University in Baltimore. Then, in 1942, Tate became the first African-American woman to be appointed to the history department of Howard University in Washington, D.C., still known by its students and alumni as the Mecca and the national capital of black intellectual life. 
Tate spent the rest of her career at Howard, that is, the time she wasn't spending on ships, planes, and trains, traveling around the world, doing research, and hobnobbing with world leaders, and knitting together a global network of black intellectuals and policymakers. Oh yes, and writing five books, as well as hundreds of scholarly and general audience articles and essays, taking breaks in the evening to host and attend dinner parties and bridge tournaments. If achievement is one theme of Tate's life, being in motion is another. Travel was not just a pleasure or work. It was central to how she carved out a prominent place in the firmament of 20th century intellectual life. Travel defined Tate's proudly independent existence. We're on our way, becoming who we are, the explorers sing in the clip that opened this segment. We're going to live, live the way we want to. Traveling as a single black woman, Tate never married and remained unpartnered, was a challenge, even for a woman who spoke multiple language. But Tate thrived on these adventures, believed in herself, cultivated global networks of friends, mustered support for her aspirations, and, to quote the explorers, lived the way she wanted to, even when it meant overcoming disapproval, rejection, or prejudice. Tate's was an extraordinary life, so I wanted to bring her biographer to the show. Historian Barbara D. Savage is Geraldine R. Siegel Professor Emerita of American Social Thought in the Africana Studies Department at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of two previous prize-winning books, Your Spirits Walk Beside Us, The Politics of Black Religion, and Broadcasting Freedom, Radio, War, and the Politics of Race, 1938-1948. to And she is a co-editor with Mia Bay, Farrah J. Griffin, and Martha S. Jones of Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women. In Merce Tate, The Global Odyssey of a Black Woman Scholar, Savage skillfully returns this path-breaking intellectual to the distinguished place in American history that she deserves. Join Barbara and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, Professor of History Emeritus at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 43, Where in the World is Merce Tate? Barbara Savage, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Claire. Thanks for the invitation. Your new book, Merce Tate, The Global Odyssey of a Black Woman Scholar, tracks a woman who is born in Michigan in a largely white environment through a prestigious career as an intellectual and a world-traveling, cosmopolitan academic. How did you come to this topic? Well, Merce Tate's name was generally familiar with me because my entire academic career has depended on spending many, many hours and many, many days in the archives at Howard University. And so even though I had not done work on her specifically, she was vaguely uh, familiar The true story is that after I wrote a book on religion and politics, I was thinking about doing a book on African-American missionaries in the 20th century. 
And so I started Googling around or searching on JSTOR and in searching for what I thought would be black missionaries in the Journal of Negro History, a journal of educational uh, review, the name that popped up was Tate, Merce Tate, but not because she was writing about African-American missionaries. She was not. She was writing about white missionaries from New England in the 1820s who had gone to Hawaii as part of the beginning of the long process that results in Hawaii becoming a part of the United States. And so I was really intrigued by her work initially, because once I saw that she had written about Hawaii, I then started to look for more of her work. And that is really what drew me in, is that this is a woman who published five books and dozens and dozens of articles on subjects in diplomatic history and international relations. And there was a part of me that really wanted to know who is this woman And I was involved in a project on Black women's intellectual history with three friends, and we each decided we needed a subject to write write on. And I thought, well, I'll write a, a small essay on Tate. And that is how it all began. You sort of imply at the beginning of the book that you were a reluctant biographer, that she made her way into your life in the ways you're describing, and you kept sort of turning away and then you capitulated to the force of her personality as many people have over time. And then at the end of the book, you talk about how you had to sort of evict her once you finished the book. So can you talk a little bit about the intimacy of the relationship between biographer and subject here? This is a new uh, topic for me entirely. I had never wanted to write a biography. I actually don't, well, I have now read a tremendous number of biographies as part of this project, but it was it's not my, my favorite genre. I'm much more drawn to memoir if I'm going to read in, in kind of a biographical tradition. And I also thought that biographies require really good writing to sustain a a narrative arc from beginning to end. And so I wasn't confident uh, about the genre, about my ability to bring this life, you know, to readers. And I think I also was afraid that I would write a really boring book about a really fascinating person. And so I entered it with a great deal of reluctance that had more to do with my own skill set at that point. I'd certainly written a couple of other books and done other things, but nothing quite like that or like this as as it's turned out. And I do think that I was drawn deeper and deeper into her life through her work, but also just through the remarkable personal story. So we have this this African-American woman who's born in 1905 in the middle of central Michigan in the middle of a blizzard, which is appropriate considering how harsh the winters are there, to parents and grandparents who had left Ohio before the the Civil War to claim land under the, the Homestead Act of 1862 and travel by ox cart to the middle of Michigan in order to be able to do that. So there was, you know, there was that as well. It's a very unusual path. And I do think that the more I learned about her, the more fascinating she became, the more compelling her life story was, and the more committed I was 
to trying to rectify her erasure from uh, African-American history, from intellectual history, and to some extent from Black women's history. And so I think I became more and more committed and some sense of mission of doing that. But my ambivalence about being a biographer, whether hers or someone else, I think still remains. Uh, I did it. It's, others, it's for others to judge how well, but I think the reluctance was, was just that. And yes, she did. In fact, she still does have a room of her own in my house because her archival presence is so expansive. It had to be contained somehow, but I ceded a room to her where all of the archival records that I have amassed, books about her and maps and everything else that I needed to try to make sense of this whiteboards, to make sense of this very long and interesting life. And someone who born in 1905, but who lives till 1996. So who also then complicates everything by living the full length of the 20th century. And she really teaches us a lot about the 20th century, which we're going to get into. But I want to sort of roll back to her early years because Merce Tate is unusual in the genre of African-American intellectual biography, not just because she's a woman, but because she really grows up among white people and ends up leaving that atmosphere when she has to leave home to finish high school. But her relationship to race and blackness is something that evolves over time. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. I would put it this way. I would say it wasn't so much that she was raised among white people. The broader issue is that she was raised in a small but vibrant black community in a rural area in Michigan. So when she went to elementary school, secondary school throughout, she was in in some cases the only black student or one of two because her brother went to school with her along the way. And so that you're right in the sense that her education was in predominantly white institutions at a time when that was very unusual for black people and certainly those who were living uh, in the South. And it also meant that she had access to a much better education than many Americans in general, and certainly most African-Americans. I mean, the Midwest is also a region, and I think it's understudied and underappreciated, despite the the great uh, work by Darlene Clark Hine and many other dedicated historians of the Black Midwest. But it was certainly an area about which I did not know as much as I had to learn in order to understand her family's position there. Yes, she was raised um, and went to school with white people, but she was always grounded in a small but vibrant group of Black families in that region. And she goes throughout her life making families around her, right? Her family remains in Michigan and she remains in touch with them. But wherever she goes, she embeds herself in new communities and makes new friends and ends up being part of this global network of Black people who are doing military work, international relations, academic work. Can you tell us about her capacity to make community around her? I think one of the gifts that she had was an ability to make conversation easily, to make friends easily, but also she had a gift for sustaining friendships across time and place and being able to move with great adaptability 
into a wide variety of, of communities so that when she leaves Michigan in 1927, and she's forced to leave actually because she had trained to be a black high school teacher, but the state of Michigan, despite its relatively progressive politics, was not yet then hiring black high school teachers. So she had to move south, ironically, to Indianapolis, where she took a job as a high school teacher in very famous high school there, Crispus Attucks High School. And that was the first time that I see her embedded in a vibrant black urban community, though still in the Midwest. And so even there, you see her welcomed into community that she did not grow up in. And the way she responds to that, her eagerness for it, her adaptability, and her sense of adventure, because I think being able to meet and sustain relationships with people who are very different from you, who may have been raised differently, or that is one of the gifts that she has. And it's certainly one of the gifts that came in handy uh, for her as she would later also become a world traveler. So I think in order to do that, you need to be confident in who you are. And as best I can tell, she was pretty much the same person every place she went, whether she's in Michigan or Indianapolis or later at Oxford or around the world, that, that was one of the gifts of that she had. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners, what's her trajectory as an intellectual? What are the institutions she lands in and how does she land there? After she leaves Michigan and she's a high school teacher in Indianapolis, she uh, on her own decides to go to Europe in the summer of, of 1931, as many other Black people of that class were able to do and were interested in doing as a, as a way of trying to feel her way toward what a modern Black woman might look like, and certainly a cosmopolitan one. So she went to England and Paris, and also then went to the League of Nations in Geneva and the School of International Relations that was being run there in 1931, so that when she comes back to the United States, she's pretty sure by then that she wants to study international relations. And that becomes her next ambition. She is very fortunate to be a member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority uh, in Indianapolis, which was offering an international study abroad fellowship, $1,000. She competed for it and won it. And it was with that money that she went to Oxford at the last minute, but was admitted nonetheless into a a graduate program in international relations. These are very unlikely things to be happening to a Black woman in the 1930s. And so you see the combination of her will, her ambition, her intelligence, her refusal to accept no for an answer, and her willingness to, to advocate on her own behalf. She would say, and I I think this is supported throughout the book, that her entire career, and I'm not done with it yet, I'll I'll finish it in just a second, but that her entire career depended on help from older Black women and white women. And that was true getting her to Oxford. It was true once she got to Oxford, which at that point had a very small group of women there, but who welcomed her, who supported her, who helped see her through getting that degree. And when she returns to the United States in 1935, 
She then goes to North Carolina, eventually taking a job at Bennett College, a Black women's school in Greensboro. And again, you see her moving through worlds that rarely speak to one another, and yet she's, you know, she's able to do that. So she's living in the Jim Crow South for the first time, and it's from there that she gets the idea that she still wants to be a professor and she's very interested in Howard. And through a really serendipity, she ends up being able to go to Harvard or Radcliffe to get a degree in government in 1941 and from there to Howard. And so she's at Howard in 1942, the first black woman in their history department. And she spends the rest of her academic career there from 42 to 77. Now I say all that and make it seem like, you know, you see it on a CV and you just say, check, check, check. But for each and every one of those, there was somebody who gave her a break, who invested in her and who was interested in her. And then you also then have her always pushing to be admitted into spaces where black women were rarely seen uh, and certainly were not expected to succeed in the ways that she did. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book is that this should be required reading for every woman entering graduate school because the determination to move forward regardless of what the barriers were to absorb insults and keep going anyway, to insist on what she wanted, to have people tell her, you're not qualified to do X, Y, or Z. And her response each time is just watch me. It's it's very, very unusual, even today, to see someone move forward with such a sense of who she is and where she's going. How do you account for that, Barbara? I think she was born with um, a supreme sense of self-confidence, a great deal of ego strength. And I shouldn't say just born with. I will say she exhibited all of those things as a child. And they may have been reinforced by family. I assume that they are. But I think like many Black educators and many Black people who had access to education, especially higher education at a time when Black literacy rates are very low, when the idea of a college education, I mean, the first Black women to get doctorates, don't that doesn't happen until 1927. So she's really right there on the edge of all of that. But like many of those early Black educators, she also had a very clear sense of mission. And it was tied to notions of race and racial advancement. The idea that my success, if I'm able to succeed, will benefit the race as a whole, will demonstrate to white supremacists that yes, not only am I as smart as you are, not only am I as intelligent as you are and as capable, but actually, in some cases, I am actually better. And so we have someone who is competing with white men, which is what you're doing in a class at Oxford. It's what you're doing in a classroom at Harvard and trying to get a degree in government and international relations. I talked in the book, I think about this notion of a, a, a sense of, of racial responsibility or the burden of racial representation. And I've been thinking about that and talking about it, but also it was a privilege in certain ways to have that opportunity to go into spaces that Black people were routinely prohibited from, demonstrate capability, bring that back to the communities from which she had come, 
take everything that she learned and not only use it in the classroom and in her writing, but take it into civic clubs and churches and women's groups and educate, as we now would think of a public intellectual, but someone who really just had this tremendously deep sense of collective mission and wanting to benefit always other Black people. And part of that sense of mission, of course, is to take on the events of the world, not to keep herself locked into an American context, but rather to take what she knows and take a broad look around the the globe and to travel extensively so that she really knows what she's talking about. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of travel in Merce Tate's life. Yeah, I w- I'm very happy to do that. I think the first thing I, I'll say as a corollary to that is that she's a child of World War I that is born in 1905. So her first kind of public awakening is right in a smack in the middle of World War I. Everything that's happening here domestically in terms of race riots, but also this broader view. She had a brother who was in the Navy in the war and came back with stories. And her earliest kind of public utterances or about that war and the unjust treatment of black soldiers who are basically serving in a segregated army. And so her sense of wanting to travel, I think, comes from that. It's there from childhood and being falling in love with sketches and, and adventures in geography books, you know, a course that's not as taught as much as it used to be. But it becomes also part of her sense of herself that she wants to be a scholar, she wants to be a professor, and she wants to travel the world and see things for herself. So in the course of her lifetime, she circled the globe twice, once east to west, once west to east, doing it solo, which is its own particular kind of travel, and also being able to reach every continent but two. She did not make it to Antarctica or to South America, ironically, though it is still close, And so she was an intrepid solo traveler. You know, she wasn't just going to London and Paris, but she was in Cambodia and all over Asia and the Pacific Southwest, New Zealand, Australia. And then in 1970, she was finally able to get to uh, Africa. I'll say this about the travel. It was actually one of the most vexing aspects of writing about her because in trying to sketch together the narrative of her life, where is she and what is she doing? That was not an easy thing to do because she never sat still. And as her biographer, I wanted to say, can you just stay at home for a while so I can just, can I just write about this without me having to get you on a plane and go here and go there? But that was the way she lived her life. And as you read the narrative of her life, the travel is always there. And so I had to figure out a way to include it because it's central to her life. And it also then required me to travel because I wanted to see some of what was most important to her. Oxford was one place and India was the other for two different reasons. Oxford, because of her time there studying, was invited to spend a year at Oxford myself which was very interesting, a place whose infrastructure pretty much looks the way it did from the 1400s (laughs) forward. So I could imagine her in that place. It's changed some, but the core bits of it pretty much look the same. And then in 1950-51, she had a year in India on a Fulbright, one of the earliest Fulbright scholars. 
And so I also felt compelled to go there because those two periods in her life were seen as high points, both intellectually and personally. And so I followed her to India, to, to, to Gore's University in Vishra Bharati, and really got a much better sense of being able to imagine what it was like to be there alone in 1951. So I use the word Odyssey purposefully in the title and global as well, because her life was in fact all about traveling, learning, exploring, bringing it back to the United States and trying to teach others about the world. And there are these moments in the book where you realize it was a very different world and what she had access to as an American scholar, an American black scholar, she goes to Germany and she ends up in a stadium with Hitler. She goes to India and she meets Nehru. It's really kind of astonishing what she had access to and where she was able to get herself. Yes, she went to Berlin after she earned her degree at Oxford in 1935. And that was not an unusual thing. Other Americans did exactly the same thing. She went to Berlin to to study German, which she already had, but was also a research language for her. So she went to an extensive course in Germany in the summer. And as part of that program, a school for foreigners, as it was, they were required by the Nazi regime to basically participate in all of these activities. And once they were taken as a group to the the sports palace and, and Hitler spoke. The meeting with Nehru was much more accidental, you know, just as she was trying to to escape the heat in Delhi and ended up in Kashmir uh, and overlapped with with him and his family there uh, doing the same thing. So it's a different age of travel, too, where people are much more comfortable, you know, engaging with, with strangers and people they are meeting along the way. So I think to be a really good solo traveler, which is what she was, you need someone who's comfortable in their own mind and in their own abilities, uh, who's independent, and who has a pretty strong sense of self. She was able to move from sort of safe harbor to safe harbor through networks of friendships of women's groups, missionaries, colleges and universities, and eventually U.S. consulate and uh, embassy sites. And so the traveling about wore me out, but I was, you know, I was privileged to do it. You know, obviously had access to resources she did not have and technologies that did not yet exist for her. Well, and you didn't have the Pan Am Clipper, which had a little bed in it. The golden age of international travel, that's when it was. I mean, that, 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 was, that was part of that period. No, I did not have that. Before we get back to the challenges of writing biography, I just want to touch on the question of Hawaii, because she decides to write about the colonization of Hawaii by the United States. And is really the first American scholar to tackle Hawaii seriously as a historical topic. And it requires her to learn a whole new field. She, in, and actually in 1948, had come up with this idea for a what we would now call a trans-imperial history of the region. So she wanted to study every empire there. So it's the British, it's the, you know, she just named them. Uh, she would go through all of them and do one big project. On her way back from India in 51, she came through Hawaii and spent a fair amount of time there. And it was then that she realized that what she was most interested in writing about was American imperialism, 
and that Hawaii would be the first, the, the perfect case study for it. So it's not that there hadn't been other historians studying Hawaii. There hadn't been other people studying it who came with what we would now see as an anti-imperialist orientation and analysis, and who also saw race there and saw the annexation coming at a time when racial politics in the U.S. cannot be overlooked. And so we see her basically seeing Hawaii as the first example of American imperialism in the 1820s, as opposed to the 1890s, which is why we, how we've been trained to think about it. So she gets there early, both in terms of the work, but also in moving the periodization back to the, the beginning of the annexation and those missionaries from Boston uh, in the 1820s. So that's the, the critique there, and also a real sense of identification with the indigenous people of Hawaii, rather than simply identifying, as she said, with the missionary story, which was <laughs> missionaries doing what missionaries do, but that she saw the, the relationship between the missionary impulse and American corporate capitalism also headquartered in Boston, and that the two things were working hand in hand in Hawaii. And it's really brilliant. And she's, she's very much ahead of her time in taking that position. I think it's worth noting for listeners as well that the reviews of this book are outstanding. Barbara, let's talk about the writing of biography a little bit. There were moments in this book where I wanted to just sit Merce Tate down and say, oh my God, I understand what you're going through, particularly in her department where she was constantly having work dumped on her and seeing other people get all of the perks of being professors at Howard. Can you talk a little bit about how you thought about her life as you were writing it as a woman scholar and an African-American woman? Yeah, it was it was it was so uh, familiar, as you say, uh, in the sense that, as I said, she's the first black woman in the history department at Howard. She is accompanied at Howard by a lot of other formidable black women who are in different positions there, both as scholars, especially, you know, scholars in a number of different fields. But none of them are deans and or chairs. And certainly uh, that's what she was complaining about all the time was that the leadership was still male and that the men took care of the other men. Now, I want to say this in defense of Howard, because as you will know, and as most folks will, will remember, it was unusual for women to be able to get academic jobs in the 1940s. And she was only able to do that uh, because Howard One had always been co-ed and they had in fact, and were in fact hiring black women to the faculty. And so it's not as if Howard was in, in some way particularly misogynistic or not. It is the case that wherever she would have been, I'm sure this would have been uh, the case. And I think to some extent, being at Howard, uh, brought into sharp relief the gender inequality, since almost everybody else was also Black. 
So she is both a black woman, but she's feeling very sharply what she saw as inequity in treatment and salary, the ordinary things, like summer salary, who gets to teach in the summer. And these are not people who are making a great deal of money. So a little bit of money uh, in terms of difference between her and somebody else in the department was very meaningful to her. And so she she called that out for the duration of her career there. And it was probably one of the most enduring aspects of her life there. She eventually was one of the earliest full professors. She did have some sort of protection in a way that some younger scholars would not have been. So she's complaining for herself, but she's also advocating on behalf of all of the women who are at Howard and are keeping that enterprise afloat. To what extent is the fact that she remains unmarried and apparently unpartnered throughout her life, to to what extent did that actually shape perceptions of her in academia? I think people did not know what to do with her for any number of reasons. That was one of Today, we're being single, living alone, owning a house of your own, and really kind of charting out a very independent, successful life without being married was really rare in that period. Marriage brought financial stability. It certainly brought a kind of social status that she was not uh, privy to, but that also she never really, in anything I've seen, complained about missing that. I think the way I think about it is that it's impossible for me to imagine her having a life she had and that she wanted and that she willed into being had she had a traditional marriage or had she had the traditional obligations of motherhood. It's really difficult for me to imagine this life under under those circumstances. She moved in circles of married couples who were very welcoming to her, the women in particular, And she always said that many of her friends were, in fact, married women. They were in bridge clubs and sororities. And so she was a part of that world. But I think in it, but not of it, may be the way to think about it. And so I see someone who wanted to be free and to want to move into the world as freely as possible and as independently as possible. I searched as as you can imagine, I hope, long and hard for evidence of intimate sexual relationship or partnership. And I don't have that. And and I certainly was very attentive uh, to that. And so I see her as basically making decisions. She was going to be a certain kind of professional Black woman and that the work that she did intellectually is what brought her great pleasure. Also kept that capacious intellect occupied for the length of her life. Probably also worth noting for our listeners that her not being married and not having intimate partners who were sexual partners does not mean she didn't have intimacy. As you've said any number of times, she had a huge circle of friends. She had students who adored her. So she was, in fact, enmeshed in circles of intimacy that were not about domesticity and sex. Yes, and they were deep networks that she sustained for the duration of her life. So she had friends at the end of her life that she had made in Indianapolis or North Carolina or Oxford or when she was on the Fulbright and kept those alive for you know for all of her life. So I don't see her as lonely. 
I see her as basically having a very rich and vibrant life and one with which she seemed to be quite well satisfied, thank you. But it's interesting to have to write against the narrative. So at some point in draft in the book, I had a sentence that said, oh, she was never married and had no children. And she led a very happy life. That's not the exact phrase. And at some point, someone edited the and out and put in the but. And so I had to go back in and say, no, I mean it just like this. You know, this is not a declension. This is doing all of that and being quite satisfied and content in it. One of the things you do such a great job of in this book is it was utterly clear to me that if Merce Tate had actually wanted to marry or wanted an intimate partner, she would have gotten one because she actually got whatever she wanted. (laughs) She was a force of will. And uh, exactly, you're exactly right. I do think that it's interesting that we're still having to have that conversation, even though it was certainly much it was different, um, but the same conversation uh, during her lifetime. And so she was all the things that independent women are accused of being bossy, stubborn, knew her own mind, didn't suffer fools, all of those things for which women are still criticized. And she died wealthy. She died very wealthy, thanks in part to being a woman who began to invest in the stock market in the late 1930s and early 1940s, and who relied on her extensive knowledge of geopolitics to make very astute stock investments, and then uh, kept her mouth shut about it for most of her life. She endowed the first graduate fellowship at what is now the Radcliffe Institute, what was the Bunting Institute in 1970. It was a $100,000 gift, but the bulk of her wealth she sent to Western Michigan University, her undergraduate alma mater, and that was nearly uh, $2 million at that time, which to this day funds full ride medallion scholarships for, for students. They've just named a college after her there, Murray State College, which I was pleased to speak at uh, on her birthday last February. And so her legacy of giving continues. And I think that example of philanthropy is an extension of that sense of mission of her wanting to always bring along students like her who did not come from families with wealth. So Barbara, I could talk about this book forever, but our time together is coming to a close. And I want to ask you my last question, which is why should our listeners read this book now? I think anybody who reads this book now will encounter a life that is inspiring in the sense that we have a woman who was born into what she called a sex and race discriminating society and who still, to her credit, found a way to do the work that was most important to her, to serve the communities important to her, to advance our knowledge about regions around the world, and also who did this with a great sense of integrity and commitment to herself, a broader set of political ideas. And I have had the opportunity to talk about Tate in in many places, not only in this country, but, but certainly in Europe and regardless of what people do or don't know about African-American history or about international relations or diplomatic history, they are drawn to her in this, in this inspirational life story. So there's that, and there is also this extraordinary scholarship, which I think is still prescient and really important for us to know about.
And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time.